Well, good morning, everyone. It's so great to be with you guys this morning. As uh, I mentioned earlier, I just got back from Ethiopia. And um, on my trip to Ethiopia this time, I was going there for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one of the reasons I was going is because as uh, we continue as a church to try and figure out uh, what the best opportunities are to continue the work that God has called us into in Ethiopia, in the orphan care, in social justice, and in expanding the gospel in regions of Ethiopia that need the good news of Jesus and need to experience the redemptive reality of Christ. So we've been working in Aksum, Ethiopia, in the northern region. Uh, we've had some missionaries on the ground there. Uh, there, Oxum is an interesting place, and so living there in that place uh, doesn't lend itself to some of the things we had hoped, although we still want to continue to figure out how to bring the gospel in its felt realities and in its expressions verbally to Oxum. There is a little town uh, about 20 kilometers north of Oxum called Adwa, and uh, we have been looking for opportunities to jump into some work there. We found an organization called Operation Rescue uh, that works with Orphan Care, does a phenomenal job, but they work in McKelly, which is about four-hour drive south of Oxum. And they wanted to start a work in Adwa, but they didn't have the financial resources or the human resources to do it. So we came alongside them and said, if we would provide the financial resources and the human resources, could we start a work in Adwa and run that work there? And they were thrilled by that. So this trip was kind of to go and nail down all those details and to actually open the work in Adwa. So um, it was awesome to just kind of get in, into that and just see what God is doing there. Well, since I was down in Michele, something else also opened up for me. You see, um, about an hour's drive from McKelly, maybe an hour and a half, and then a fairly long hike down into the mountains is a little village. And inside this little village, with little spread huts around, uh, is a little family and a little home. And in that home is the home that my four beautiful adopted Ethiopian children were born in. And so I had the opportunity to get in a truck and drive out into the middle of nowhere and then get out of the truck and hike down into the valley to go and see the home where my children were born and meet some of the extended family. When I first entered into that place and that hike, heading down into the mountains, the expanse of beauty that you see is extraordinary. Big green rolling mountains and wonderful valleys, and you, you get off the beaten path completely. I mean, literally, I think every, uh, uh, every uh, 10 minutes or so that you hike down, you travel about 100 years into history. I remember at one point, we bumped into three older women, and um, I was with Jack Forsyth, and we, we were the first white people they had ever ever laid eyes on in their entire life. Not me, I'm, I'm not so much white, but Jack is very white. And so they were like, what is that? We're like, that's a human being. They're just white and it's slightly different. And so literally you're traveling into a world that is locked down from the rest of the planet in many ways. And as you travel, and I remember looking at the landscape and just going, if this landscape was in the U.S., we would have multi-million dollar homes all over this mountaintop. You wouldn't be able to touch this land because it's just so beautiful and, and it's so peaceful. You heard the birds singing and you just think to yourself for a minute, I mean, this is the pure life, man. I mean, it's the quiet life, the, the escaped life, the, the life you'd long for in the busyness and hustle and bustle of what we tend to live. And at, at surface level, that's what you think is happening. And then you get digging deeper. You, you get down into the valley and you, you meet the people there and you start talking about the stories and you realize in the middle of this beautiful place is extraordinary pain and suffering, extraordinary difficulty, difficulty you and I cannot begin to fathom. 
uh, living in these little farms are, are little families, and, and they are trying to survive by the land in the little bits that they can. The land is not kind there, not when it comes to farming. And so luxuries you and te- I take for granted every day, like eating, are not luxuries they can take for granted every day. In fact, there are times when time stretches and those luxuries do not exist. So they fight every day to make sure that they have enough and often don't. In the process of doing this, The best way to make sure that you have enough in some ways is to birth as many children as possible because then you have more hands to work the land. The trouble is that the more children you birth, the more mouths you have to feed. So it's a difficult dynamic because on the one hand, you produce more workers, but on the other hand, you produce more mouths. And oftentimes, the more mouths cost you more than the workers actually produce. And so you end up being in a position where you can't support that. And so what you do is you either see children die, which is uh, common from either disease or starvation in some ways, or uh, when the, the, the children get to be about 13 or 14, especially the girls, you find a family with a man that is in his 20s or 30s, and you get those two to connect it, and a 13 or 14-year-old girl will marry uh, a man that is older, and they will start producing children, because then the 13 or 14-year-old is no longer someone you have to feed, but they're also producing more hands to be able to work the land, which isn't a good thing, even though it seems like a good thing. And then, on top of that, your religious experience is really an a, a experience of bondage in many ways, because your religious experience is a self-righteousness righteous orthodoxy. That means that you're constantly trying to do anything that you must to keep God happy so he will make it rain and and develop a crop. And so your entire relationship with God is not freedom. It's not gospel. It's not relationship. It is the, the human being trying to please the God so the God will produce. And so you are trapped on every level in then. And I stood in that place looking at that life that was supposed to be so beautiful and yet so much pain, realizing that many of them would take their older sons and daughters that are in their, their late teens, early 20s and send them off to the, the larger towns like McKellie to go find work so they can make some money, so they can buy a donkey or a cow so they can work harder in the land. But the problem is that their older children go out to these cities and they can't read and they can't write and they have no education, so they can't really work, so they become laborers or they, or they wash clothes and then in that they make so little money every month, working 10 hours a day, seven days a week, so little money that we would absolutely be blown away, not even double-figure dollars a month. And so it, it really doesn't help at all. It just continues to perpetuate the cycle of survival. And I stood in that place, and I was reminded in that place why we are called by God to do the things we do. Why we are privileged by God to step into stories and become redemptive for those stories as ambassadors of Christ. Why God did not simply rescue us, but also called us, restored us to a purpose to be ambassadors for Him and to go into the world both locally and globally and to actually make change and actually do something with what we have for the sake of the expansion of His kingdom, the glory of His name, and loving the people that He sends us to love. To become more than simply a message, but to become a felt redemptive reality. I I was so deeply reminded standing there that no matter how hard missional living may become, that this is what we are invited to be part of. 
Paul writes to the church in Corinth in his second letter, and there's this little section in the letter where he describes for us the new life that we have now been called into, invited into, and allowed to participate in. And it's a beautiful little passage that gives us a, such a clarity on the fullness of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes these words. Listen to this. He writes, oh, I'll get there in a second, hold on, there we go. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, it, it says, uh, hold on one second, I just missed my spot. It's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So we've all heard that, right? Uh, when, when Christ rescues us, we become brand new. Our souls are rescued, we are set free, we are made right with God, and the old is gone, the death is gone, the darkness is gone, and God makes us children of light and life and freedom, and we are set free. But it doesn't end there. It goes on to say this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So we are made right with God. That is the good news of the gospel. But then it says this, and, look at this, here it goes, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And it goes on to say that we are ambassadors of Christ. You see, the full gospel is actually this message that you and I were lost to life and light and freedom, that Christ came, became nothing for us, became a servant, the divine becomes humanity. Can you imagine the lowliness to which he had to crawl to enter into our world? Giving up all of his attributes, his rights, his powers, his authority on that space and yet remaining fully and completely divine but, with, with, but simultaneously becoming servant and then living life for us on planet earth. He died a horrid death carrying a heavy cross to the top of a hill allowing us to kill him on that cross and then he rose from the dead all of that so that he could rescue our souls and set us free from the bondage in which we live and the, the rat race of a life we called our own. But the gospel also says that in that great work, he did not only rescue our souls, but he restored our purpose, our created purpose, to make him known, to image him, to be his ambassadors. And we ask ourselves, how do we do that? Do we memorize the four spiritual laws? Do we memorize the Romans road? Do we go to our workplace and share the gospel? Yes, certainly that's part of it, but that is not all of it. We actually begin to live redemptively on behalf of Christ in a very particular way. Jesus described it for us in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is with a crowd of people and his disciples, and he says to them, listen guys, if you're going to call yourself a Christ follower, if you're going to follow me, that is to walk in my ways, to, to live my life, to be my disciples, which by definition was to become like your rabbi, then this is what life is going to look like. And he says this, first of all, you're going to have to learn to hate your mother and father, now your spouse and your children and everything that means anything to you. And you go, whoa, I thought Jesus was like all about love your family, love everybody. He is. But the reason that you love everybody, the reason you love your spouse, the reason you love your children, the reason you love your parents, the reason you love people is not because you need to or you need them, it's because God asked you to. 
See, what he's saying is, if your love for these people are about you, if you love them and they belong to you, then when I ask you to do something radical that would jeopardize anyone in that circle, you won't do it. Because they will be your idols and they will keep you from me. But what you have to learn to do is say, no, nothing belongs to me anymore. Nothing is mine. All of this, my resources, relationships, circumstances are means by which God invites me to live on mission for Him, making Him known by loving people. So I love them because I can, because I should, because He asked me to. And so first he says, you got to learn to fix your eyes on me. Everything has to become about me. And two, he says this. And then when you got that, you got to take up your cross and follow me. If you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not following me. You might know me. You might be watching me. I might love you and you might love me, but you ain't following me. You're not a disciple of mine following me unless you take on your crosses. And at that time in Luke chapter 14, the guys couldn't have imagined what that meant until later on in the story when they watched Jesus carry a heavy cross up a hill, kneel down and scream, I am here to make all things new as blood and pain and horror rushed through his body. He allowed himself to be nailed to that cross and he died on that place. And that's when we finally get a a glimpse into what Jesus was meaning. That the redemptive process to redeem anything dead requires the following process. Somebody has to become nothing, giving up their rights, their entitlements, their stuff, their dreams, their deal for the sake of another. Then they will probably take on the burdens of that other story that they have just made themselves nothing for. And those burdens will try to kill them. Because that's what sin does. And as we take on the burdens of others to be redemptive and those crosses we carry become so heavy that we get down on one knee covered in the blood of the story that we're in and we feel like we are going to die and we shout, this better make things new, God. And then we find ourselves nailed to the very cross we took on to try to save someone and it seems it's going to kill us. Then we are right smack dab in the middle of a redemptive story. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And then you will probably die on that cross. And when you're emotionally dead and spiritually spent and physically exhausted and you think to yourself, what have I done? Why did I do this? This is insane. And every friend you have and every family member you have looks at you and goes, told you so. Told you so. We told you were crazy. You will be standing there and your only hope will be singular that another part of the redemptive story is that there's always resurrection. And that the God that we call our own that has called us into the story raises the dead. He raised himself and he will raise us. He will raise our stories. So that is what it means to live redemptively. That is what it means to live out there, to live radically, to give yourself, to give myself for the sake of carrying the burdens of others. We have this insane ideology in our Western Christianity that says that when you come to Jesus, he rescues your soul, and then we stop there and we make an assumption that since he's rescued us into a great life, into a great future, that it is now his duty and his job and his promise that day to day he's going to make our current life wonderful too every day. Oh man, you, you thought the American dream was awesome? Knowing Jesus and the American dream is awesomer. That's how we think. 
And so when anything goes wrong in our life, we get sick or we get poor or something doesn't work or a friend hates us, we go, what have I done? Why do you hate me? Because we assume God is here to make us happy. If God wanted us to have this life without any issues, he would have taken us home the second we came to Jesus. But he left us on planet earth in the middle of the zone of death because he has a greater purpose for us than even just taking us straight home. He has a mission for us and he's inviting us into the story. And so we step into a brand new deal. I think so often the reality is this that we are so afraid to step into radical living because we are so convinced that our pursuit should be for our own comfort because that makes sense if God loves us. But God has given us a promise that our entire future for all of eternity is unbelievable. And our time on planet Earth will have some miracles and some martyrdom and that's the deal. It's not just gonna be poverty and horror and suffering and it's not just gonna be wealth and happiness and friends. It's gonna be a constant convergence of both those and we live for the gospel. The author of Hebrews writes to us in Hebrews chapter 10 considering all this and says, because this is your life now, you ought to be aware of some stuff. And in Hebrews chapter 10, he starts out this way. Let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, so what is he saying? He's saying since Jesus rescued you, died for you, gave himself up for you, opened the way to be right with God for you, and mediates for you every day as your accuser tries to accuse you, since all that is true, since you are free and I am free in Christ, he says this. He says, therefore, since all that is true, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So first he says, number one, fix your eyes on Christ and remember who he is and who you are in him. And then number two, he says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, the author of Hebrews says, listen, one, if you're gonna live this free life and you're gonna understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and follow him, you're gonna take up some heavy stuff. You're gonna be crushed under some crazy crosses. You're gonna feel like you're dying a lot. Because instead of taking the easy road when something's happening in your life, you're gonna take God's way and it's going to come heavy and hard. I tell my kids all the time, there's always an easy way out. The culture will always present that way. But you choose God's way even when God's way is harder because that's what we get to do as Christ followers. And if you're gonna do that, It is going to get hard. And so the author of Hebrews says, listen, don't neglect getting together regularly so that you can constantly spur one another on and stir one another up because otherwise this life you live is gonna get too heavy and you're gonna go, this is stupid and you're gonna give up. And you're going to just go back to pursuing comforts because it's easier. But if you come together in biblical community and regularly you are presenting the gospel to each other going, remember who we are, remember what he did, remember why we're here, remember what this life's about. Oh, you feel like you're dying under a cross? Awesome! Keep at it because resurrection is coming. Redemption for that story is coming. And we do that for one another. 
I, I think, in part, the reason in the American culture we are so prone to bounce around from church to church looking for a church that's going to give us feel-good feelings and have the best band and the best communicator and the best this and the best coffee and the best stuff. The reason we bounce around so easily, the reason we come to church so inconsistently, the reason we don't make uh, jumping into community a priority is because we do not live lives radical enough to need each other. We live lives that are comfortable enough that it's nice to have each other but it's not a necessity. I got two guys that were crazy enough to step into pretty extreme versions of adoption as well. Adoption's not the only way to live missionally, it's just the way that we particularly have been invited into, uh, me and these two other guys, and I do life with them uh, because their adoption stories are pretty extreme like ours as well. And on a almost a daily basis, but most of the time it's two or three times a week, we text each other constantly. All three of us are very busy people. We have very busy lives, but we text each other, and usually our texts are this way. So I don't know how you spell that, but it goes across pretty well. And we text each other this, and when you get one of those texts, we're in a little group, then the other two usually text back going, and then we go, Jesus, Jesus, and we remind each other. And then about every two or three weeks, sometimes every four weeks, depending on how crazy life is, we go out about 10.30 at night and we go see a movie, usually an action flick just to be able to sit there and watch a bunch of stuff happen. And then afterwards, we stand in a parking lot together at one in the morning, and we talk. Just talk for an hour. And we talk about how uh, life is going and how difficult it is at times and how heavy the burdens are and how watching our wives die is no fun and how watching our kids die is no fun and how much we have to try to enter into remembering who we are and why we're here. And when we leave that place every time, we are stirred up and we are spurred on. And you know why we make time for that? Not because we have time, but because if we don't, we die. See, when you live radically enough, you need each other. And Hebrews says you gotta, you got to not neglect gathering together to spur one another up and stir one another up because you're going to need it. And then into that gathering space, into that communal experience, God gifts us with the sacraments. The sacraments are an extraordinary gift in the opportunity to communally remember God, celebrate Him, and be inspired by what He's done. A sacrament is a very simple thing. You see it up here. A religious rite or ceremony instituted or recognized by Jesus Christ and regarded as an outward and visible sign of an inward action. That's what a sacrament is. And the sacraments are given to us as a means to come together to be inspired to remember and celebrate Jesus. Now, the sacraments are in many ways ritualistic in the sense that they are consistent and that they are regular. They're supposed to be anyways. And they are certainly rites of passage in that on our spiritual journey, they are awakenings, recognitions that we have to have to participate in these because they by definition come with certain truths that say, if you know this, then participate in this. If you've come to this point in your journey, then this is the sacrament to step into. So though they are certainly... uh, rituals and rites, that is not their primary purpose. Their primary purpose is to bring us together around a sacrament so that we together in community can be reminded of the work of Jesus, what he's done for us, who we are in him, and what our story is now so that we would be inspired to go out and live on mission instead of living for ourselves and our own comforts. Comfort is not evil. That's a poverty theology. But comfort should not be what we pursue. We should pursue mission. 
And the sacraments remind us of that reality. And so, at different points, Jesus instituted or commanded certain sacraments. And we get to participate in those sacraments as a community together regularly. And if you participate in that sacrament because it is a religious rite or because it is a ritual or because it is something that you do, then you are missing the opportunity that is set before you in the sacrament. You are to participate in the sacrament so that you would be drawn into who Jesus is, celebrate him, be inspired by him as you remember him, and then leaving changed because of it. It gives you the opportunity to come to a sacrament in any experience and say, for wherever I have lived for myself, for wherever I have desired my rights and my entitlements, I want to live differently. It is a point of confession to say, God, I want to live for you, not for me. And I am reminded at this table in my community that I belong to you, Jesus, by a great work of sacrifice. And I am privileged to live a life of sacrifice for the sake of others whenever the opportunity is presented me. And that's what the sacraments are for. On the very last night that Jesus was with his boys on planet Earth before his death, They were sitting around a table celebrating the Passover meal. And the Passover meal was an incredible uh, festival and feast instituted after an amazing story of rescue. When the people of Israel were rescued from Egypt, God instituted the Passover meal so that they would never forget that God redeemed them, rescued them, uh, and made them belong to himself. It is really in many ways the story of Jesus, but a shadow version of it, a a little picture of what was to come. So Jesus is sitting at this meal and they're remembering the great redemptive work of God for the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And when he gets to the bread, he says, listen guys, I know what this meal represents. It represents a great work of redemption. But from now on, after tomorrow, when you see what's about to happen, whenever you eat at this table, I don't want you to remember the shadow of redemption, the, the, the means by which I pulled Israel out of Egypt. I want you to remember the great work of redemption that I'm about to do for all of the human story. And he breaks the bread and he says, from now on when you eat together and break this bread, you remember my work for this is my body that broke for you. And then when he gets to the cup of redemption, instead of the cup being a remembrance of the shadow of a redemptive story in the nation of Israel and Egypt, he says, from now on, remember my work that is for all of you. And in that night, he instituted the sacrament of communion, something we celebrate together regularly in our church rhythms, something that draws us back in to fix our eyes on Jesus and to remember what he's done for us so that we can remember who we are, so that we can live our lives in light of his great work and in light of our great honor to belong to him. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth as well, and he's given them some instructions about how to handle the communion sacrament. And he says to them, listen guys, if you're gonna come to the table of communion, Come to the table of communion to remember Jesus, to celebrate him, to honor him, and to remember what he's done for you. That's what this table is for. Do not come to this table to misuse this table, to drink or eat because you are thirsty, or to come forward into this table because you're trying to prove something to yourself or to others, trying to be spiritual, trying to show people that you belong, that you're part of this. If you come to this table without the heart to remember what Jesus has done for you, then you offend Christ. And that's never a good idea. 
He actually uses the word judgment in that. He goes, you don't want to necessarily pour judgment on yourself just to come to a table because you think everybody's watching or because you're hungry. You come to this table to remember Jesus. And if you come to this table to remember Jesus, then you are free to enjoy this table. You see, that's where the rite of passage comes in. If you've come to a point in your life where you know Christ and you want to come remember Him, then this is a table that is for you and for me. It doesn't matter what church you belong to, what, where your membership lies. It doesn't matter how long you've been on the spiritual journey, whether you're brand new to Jesus or whether you've been traveling with Jesus for 190 years. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter where that point is. It doesn't matter today if there are things in your life that you have done that you, that, that you need to confess or, or that you feel like, oh, everything's good. This is an opportunity for you to come to say, God, whatever's in my life that I've lived for me, I just bring it to you now and I want this to be a remembrance and inspiration to me. And if you are here on your spiritual journey and you've not come to know Jesus, you don't know what all this means. You're visiting for the first time or you visited for a couple of weeks or months and you're like, I still don't know if I even buy into all this Jesus stuff. I don't know what it's all about. You know, we consider it a great privilege here when somebody demonstrates authenticity in their spiritual journey. We're not interested in fake stuff. So we consider it as courageous to get up and come to the table as we consider it courageous to just relax in your seat and observe because it demonstrates to us that you go, you know what? I don't know that I'm coming to remember Jesus, so I'm free to just chill here and nobody's going to judge you for that. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whether you know Christ and you want to come and remember this together with us, or whether you're observing the spiritual journey still and you go, you know, I'm just going to watch. That's awesome. We love that story. But we want you to come and participate in this incredible sacrament and allow it to become a remembrance and inspiration and a celebration for you so that you would live your lives captivated by Christ. Let me pray, and then we'll come. God, thank you so much for instituting sacraments that allow us to fix our eyes on you and remember what you've done. And as we uh, prepare to approach this table of communion, God, we just thank you that this table represents the great work of the gospel, the great work that you did, Jesus, that became the good news, the great work that you became nothing for us, becoming flesh and blood, that you died a horrible death of crucifixion on the cross for us, that you rose from the dead for us to redeem our souls and to restore our purpose, God. And God, as we come to this table, we come to honor you. We come to worship you. We come to exalt you. We come to stand in awe of what you have done. We come to be inspired by you. We come to be awakened by you. We come to be encouraged by you and strengthened by you so that we would live our lives fixed on mission and not fixed on self, fixed on you and what you desire for us. So God, would you use this time to stir us up and spur us on to greater love and good works so that we would live for you in every opportunity we get locally and globally and we would be great ambassadors on your behalf, recognizing what you've done for us and recognizing who we are in you. We love you, Jesus. Spirit of God, we adore you. Father, we worship you. Triune God, we are honored to know you. We love you. Amen.